Bitchy Women was written and is narrated by Isabel Cook. Do enjoy. A glimpse of a world I cannot belong to, a tempting taste of life so shallow. I watched from a distance it was sometimes hard to swallow. Knives just so, pointing in every direction. The knives are daggers on closer inspection. Out for everyone who was not in and slyly smiling. Voices in whispers not definitely defining. Mumbled and hushed as vicious tongues unleash. The victim half knowing, embarrassment increase. This morning circle of beautifully polished ladies and wives would kill a dove and be immune to its cries. Talons sharpened with bright bold colours, fingers pointing and spreading untruthful rumours. Viper coiled those rasping tongues they hypnotise. Foolish men lust and fall helplessly for all their woven lives. Men are bewitched by their beauty and charm, but soon regret with talons brushing softly on their arm. They flock like birds with gossip to their own kind. They slither and slide beautiful ornaments in place, but on reflection theirs is only a coldness of face. There But For God's Grace and is written and is narrated by Tina Yates. It is a very thought-provoking poem and it's especially important at this time of the year. There But For God's Grace A man alone but for his dog and a hundred faceless people pass him by. Who cares that he's no hope left? Who wonders if God is just a lie? No home, no food, no loving touch. Let's just pretend he isn't really there. It surely must be his fault, because we know society cares. These classless days of equal chances, welfare state and unemployment benefit, ensure that all are cared for, well housed and fed. Well, doesn't it? So who has failed this man then? Why does he sit there, homeless and alone? He has his dog to love him, but the state heart is made of stone. You pass him now, rush for your train, barely a pause to slow your hurried stride. But think, as you dash past him, there, but for God's grace, am I. That is absolutely lovely, Tina. So every time you see somebody sitting in the street there, please have a thought. Juliet's Gift was written by Janet Nichols and is narrated by Roger Ems. I remember the 17th of March, St Patrick's Day, as my anniversary and hers. It was one of those afternoons when the sun sets at six but starts waning at about three and so the light was fading when I arrived at the Riverside pub. I was fading as well and wanted to do it quickly, sitting indoors in the darkest spot possible. A pint and a whiskey chaser. I pointed at a pump without any chit-chat and was relieved when the barman and his inappropriate smile left quickly, leaving me to stew in my own misery. There were two big leather armchairs next to a huge ancient fireplace, and I sat in the one that put my back and my misery to the bar. Hopefully, other customers wouldn't arrive, and no one would enter by the side door that faced me. Good. The fire wasn't lit. I wanted gloom, and despite its low ceilings, old beams and muted lighting, this place wasn't gloomy enough. 
the pop music playing in the background was just too cheerful. You'll have found me by now, I started writing. No, that wasn't right. I've done it to put us all out of our misery, I started again. It, it still wasn't right. The background music stopped and I waited for it to start again, focusing on what to write at my third attempt, but shivered. Maybe they should have lit the fire after all. Someone was sitting next to me. Although she could have sat anywhere in the empty pub and she'd brought a cold in with her. I wouldn't give her the grace of even a glance. What brings you to this place? I heard the girl's voice say. Go away, I grunted. Don't sit there, you can sit anywhere else. But I want to sit here with you and your troubles, she said. You were writing your last words to this life and I've seen it before. I looked up grudgingly to see who I was talking to and was surprised. She was wearing a rough-looking shawl of the sort that must still be fashionable amongst hippie types. But I'd never seen such white skin before. So white that it might not have seen the sun for years. Didn't girls nowadays appreciate that pale makeup could look too unnatural? Yet she was wearing no eye makeup and her eyes had a brilliance that needed none. What brings you to this place? she asked again. None of your business, I said. Oh, it is, she said. You're contemplating a very cruel act. You've no idea what you're talking about, I snarled. I've been cruel for years. It's being cruel that's kept me going. It's seen off my wife and the best part of my family, and now it's ruining my daughter's life. They'd all be better off without me. But your daughter would not have been born without you. Well, better than what I've put her through. But the girl's icy hand was stroking the rough veins on my hand in a way that momentarily cooled my mind. Just think of all the screaming, she said. What screaming? Theirs? They've kept it all inside no matter what I've done to them. It's like they just came back for more. And even when my wife left, she did it quietly. No, she didn't, the girl insisted. She'll have been screaming inside. They'll mourn for you. They'll be screaming inside and you'll hear them when you're gone and it's too late. The screaming will be awful. But I want them to wish they'd helped me more, I said. Yes, you said you were cruel. You want to hurt them. She sounded casual. She was really annoying me now. It's not like that. I can't help what I am and they should understand. You can go now. And I reached out to pick up the whiskey chaser. But she was too quick for me and the whiskey had disappeared. Now I was furious and stomped heavily to the bar. That kid over there is making a nuisance of herself, I complained when the barman appeared. What's she doing in a pub on her own anyway? What kid? You were sitting on your own, he said. I turned to see that the chairs were empty. No, there was a girl with me, white pasty face, and she brought the cold in with her. Ah, must be Juliet, the barman sniggered. Arrived early. She's not due till midnight, and even then they've not caught her. Never seen her myself, and I've always thought it's a laugh. I'm not one to believe in ghosts, and I've never been drunk enough to see one. 
He pointed to a beam across the ceiling behind me on which was written, in memory of Juliet Tewsley, who died 17th of March, 1050 AD. Story goes she was in love with a woodcutter and admired him from afar. Then one day she approached him and offered some of the flowers she'd been picking, but he rejected her and threw the flowers away. She was heartbroken, hanged herself, and was buried in unconsecrated ground. Yet she's supposed to be under that slab over there. He pointed to a slab of granite that was conspicuous amongst the floorboards. But I'm not drunk, I insisted as I looked back at where I'd been sitting. Something was different. And the barman said they weren't there when I'd left my seat. A rough posy of snowdrops was lying on the fireside table next to my unfinished letters. They were real, fresh flowers and felt cool as I put them into my shirt pocket to take home. The barman served me a strong coffee with lemon cake. So, believe it or not, that's why I come to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. It's a year since my last alcoholic drink, but in that time I've drunk a lot of coffee and eaten some excellent cakes. Don't Look Back, written by Neil Weeding, narrated by Roger Ems and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. As the crescent moon began its emergence from its obscurity behind a bank of clouds, the air began to awaken from its slumber and a breeze caressed its way gently down the valley. The distant clatter of the settled to Carlisle railway tracks could be heard as the 1052 rattled past. It had been raining earlier, and the moistness in the air could be felt at the back of the throat. Zack was tired, and he'd driven from Hampshire that day. He pulled out a map and shone his head torch onto the paper. Wharfdale was nowhere near, and he was right in the middle of the Ribble Valley. Zack was tired and he'd driven from Hampshire that day. Zack was still angry at his friend James for his bad navigation and underestimation of the distance to the nearest garage. The echo of James's words still reverberated in Zack's head. Oh, come on, mate. We've still got 20 miles in the tank. Push on. There's bound to be a petrol station soon. Zack would only laugh if he wasn't so angry. Mrs. Davis of the Felon Lamb B&B would be thinking we weren't showing up. James took out his mobile phone and it seemed as if they were in a signal black spot. Whichever direction he pointed the phone in, the signal strength just wasn't there. There was no sound other than the rustling of the woodland ahead. The wind had picked up and in the woods Zack heard a distant sound. It sounded like wailing. Zack turned to James and stared at him with disapproving eyes. Well, don't look at me, James scowled. I'm too shattered to fool around. Well, what was that then? Zack whispered. It's getting closer. Zack turned and looked again in the direction of the woods. There, did you see that? Oh, oh no, what, mate? You're seeing things. Or are you just getting back at me for being lost? 
don't be stupid. I'm serious. I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm very, very tired. I've done most of the driving, and you've sat on your lazy backside for most of the A1. Zack grabbed James and turned him around. Now you stand there and look at the woods. Don't look back and just watch. James obliged and stood still. The wind had picked up now even more, and they suddenly noticed that the wailing noise had got closer. At first it sounded like the wind, but became very distinctive. As they both stood there, frozen to the spot, beads of sweat began to travel down their brows. Oh, goodness me, cried Zack. I can see something. There, just there. Could you see it? No, explained James. But I'm not staying here. I'm going back to the car. James turned and began to walk at a fast pace back towards the car at the entrance to the lane. Wait, said Zack. I'm coming with you. You're scaring me, James exclaimed. I'm not staying here another minute. At this point, Zack felt something brush against the side of his head. Oh, oh no, something touched me. Zack looked at James. You know what I just said to you? What? Don't look back, just keep walking. James nodded and his breathing became deeper. The wind was quite strong now and they both felt compelled to quicken the pace and they began to run. Slowly at first, but then again something touched Zack's left ear. They both started to run. Much faster. And Zack screamed, I touched me again. Oh, just run. Zack felt his chest tighten and he clenched his palms and started to look around. He could see a dark shadow in the corner of his eye. He looked ahead and mumbled under his breath, Don't look back! Don't look back! Zack could see James at his side, running and panting. The wailing began to get louder, and echoes reverberated around the lane. There were still no other sounds, as if all nature had abandoned the area to escape. No signs of any life at all, no people, not a single sound other than the wailing in Zack's ear. Then James fell and screamed out in pain. He yelled out, Keep going, get to the car and come back and get me. Zack nodded as he looked forward, focusing on the car in the distance. He wanted to look back, but didn't want to face the reality of what was happening. There was still something there, touching Zack as he ran. The ice-cold feeling on his body was more and more intense. The wind was picking up. But as Zack continued to run, his eyes were looking in all directions, and he subconsciously noticed that although the wind had got worse, the trees in the lane were not swaying to match the intensity of the wind around him. Zack could hear James as he seemed to struggle to get up. Zack had to stop and look. He just couldn't leave James there. He stopped, and with a deep sigh turned round. What confronted his eyes was something Zack couldn't have imagined he would ever see. The dark shape was standing over James as he struggled to get up. As James pushed himself upwards, the shadow lifted what appeared to be a clenched fist and drove it into James's body.
With that, James squealed and fell to the ground motionless. Zack screamed, No! No! He started to run towards the dark figure, but it began to look up, opened its mouth, and an ear-piercing screech came out. Zack stopped and realised that he needed to continue to run. He turned towards the car and ran as fast as he could. At that moment, Zack realised the shadow was with him, and he felt tightness around his throat. His body lifted from the ground and he was suffocating. The last words he ever heard were from the dark shadow. You were told by your friend not to look back. You should have listened to him. Hello, I'm Fiona Ritchie. My mother moved in with me a few years ago as she needed a little help to remain independent because she was losing her eyesight. My observational musings are the reason I remain sane. This is my weekly diary, so you know what shenanigans we've been getting up to. me to make a cup of coffee for her. We're both massive tea drinkers and when I do brew a coffee you can smell it all over the house. We just come back from a walk and I usually go straight to the kettle but on this occasion I got distracted by a text and needed to send a fairly urgent email. Half an hour passed and mum mentioned she couldn't smell the coffee so I headed back into the kitchen only to be diverted by something else. Mum never misses an opportunity to criticise, so when we eventually settled down for the evening many hours later, I asked her what she'd like to hear on television, to which she replied, It doesn't really matter about the TV, because I might not live long enough to make it to the end of the programme through lack of coffee. Having got through what I hope is the worst of the winter weather, I realised we were getting low on logs, so mum suggested I contacted the nice young man who delivered loads of dry mixed wood logs last year. I said I texted the man we used last time. He's not the right man. You want the bloke that delivered off the back of the van and Pam the Jam helped him stack them in the garage. No mum, I need the bloke who delivered the wood in a bag, I counted. You're wrong. It's the man in a van. You weren't here so you wouldn't know. But the last delivery were dry logs and they came in a bag and we still have the bag in the garage. I'm sure it was him. I poured a gin. Please note, I never mention the word tonic these days. A couple of days passed. Have you heard from the log man yet? The one who delivered with the van? Mum, it wasn't him. Well, you're wrong. See the hammers being rearranged and swung wildly above my head. I'll tell you what, Mum, I'll contact Pam. She suggested the last bloke delivering in bags because the logs were dry. I contacted Pam and blow me down, I was right. And worse for mum, it was reiterated that the van man couldn't have delivered last year because some skank had stolen his vehicle and all his equipment, so he couldn't work. I broke the news to mum without sounding smug, skipping or clashing symbols. Oh, so I was wrong then, hmm. I still haven't heard from the bloke, but it's the knowing I was actually right once in my life that matters. 
So mum has been a bit more adventurous of late and we've been driving a little further into Bedford to have a walk around the glorious park there. Halfway round there's a tea room which is a very popular meeting place. The paths are dotted with wooden benches and invariably we stop, sit and chat as I watch the world go by. After 10 minutes of basking in the early spring sun, mum asked me who was making that dreadful noise and was that a dog peeing up her leg? The answer in order is children and yes. So the usual rigmarole before we leave is mum going to her bathroom and then getting her coat on. I was in the dining room waiting for her completing a crossword. I can generally guess how long she's going to be, but 20 minutes have passed and even by mum's standards this seemed like a long time. I left it another five minutes working on the basis that if she had suddenly died then she'd still be dead in five minutes time. She still did not appear, so I sauntered to investigate, calling out as I went up the hall so she knew I was on my way. Where am I? Where are you? inquired Mum. She got lost standing in the middle of her bedroom, and naturally it was my fault. So leading up to the walk one day, Mum informed me that she'd lost her socks. You probably won't be surprised to learn that Mum does lose quite a few things. Sadly, I'm not one of them. But invariably, whatever she has lost usually is within touching distance of her cold, gnarled fingers. Having realised she couldn't find her socks, she asked me to look for them. Apparently, they were last seen in the sitting room, tucked inside the shoes she usually walks in. They were trainer socks and tan-coloured, so we're not talking about huge flammable bed socks here. Being bone idle and less than sober, it was past 11 in the morning, so what do you expect? I leaned across from my vantage point, but couldn't see any socks around her chair. I reluctantly stood and had a closer look. I spotted some white socks, but apparently I was stupid as white socks weren't the same as tan socks. Pardon me for existing. I got her to stand up and check they weren't under her and then headed for a bedroom to have a look around as I had a sneaky feeling they would be in the wrong drawer. On reaching her room, I turned the light off moved the bag filled with bags to the left and returned to tell Mum I couldn't see them anywhere. According to Mum, they couldn't have got very far as they were newly washed and aired. I had absolutely no idea where they'd gone. Six hours later, we discovered she was wearing them. As a result, I never moved the bag filled with bags back to the right. Anyway, some sad news. My neighbour's wife left him last week she said she was going out for milk and never came back. I asked him how he was coping. He said, not bad. I've been using some of that powdered stuff. New Haven Cottage. Gardens and Cross Cottage Gardens. Written and narrated by Jean Fairburn. Do enjoy. Leguminous lupins love lilac vermilion and smile at the secrets of scented sweet williams while red-hot pokers hug haughty high hollyhocks and forget-me-nots flirt with filigreed foxgloves. Trailing pea-runners swoop sideways and stoop to form loops which droop then straggle around hoops and thirsting, bursting, swollen pea pods, so ripe for picking, explode and then drop off, 
tumbling to earth in a vegetable waterfall, a cascading shower of tiny green cannonballs. Tendrils of beanstalk sprout and wind round, zigzag supports of knotted string bound to unpainted railings and long-handled rakes, tied to bamboo canes and thin wooden stakes, making a framework of triangular sails adjacent to a greenhouse with sacks hung on nails. A cathedral of glass storing pots which, unglazed, contain ripening tomatoes stacked up in square trays. Passengers taking tea with thinly buttered toast in crowded cafes along the Sussex coast where a slug grey sea of ribbed, bridged glass hosts red and white ferries with tall black tunnels that roll and wallow as they plunge across the choppy English Channel. Weeping Willow and was written and is narrated by Helen Mahoney and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. This is a poem about one of my favourite trees because of its elegance and beauty, but this is told from the point of view of the willow tree itself. Weeping Willow Some call me the weeping willow and imagine that I am bent in sorrow, but while other trees wave to the blue heavens, I bow down and salute to the rich soil that nourishes me and give praise for my strong roots and the bonds which hold me. I bestow thanks to the clear water that quenches my thirst and the golden sun that warms my leaves. I move freely in a gentle breeze, my fronds swaying lazy and languidly to the rhythm of the air, refreshing and cleansing in my dance. I am playful and pretty, like a young girl with silken hair who shakes her glossy tresses to impress and bewitch a lover. My green leaves, like precious gems, shimmer and sparkle in the light, ever-changing and rippling with the cool winds. I swirl and bend and twist, soft as a ballerina in tulle, light as a feather or a dandelion puff. I brush and wash the earth, as Mary did the feet of Christ, and am loved in return. Children, too, enjoy my magic, hiding between my protecting arms, and climbing my easy branches to reach the heights. They say I am Salix Babylonica, and I once stood by those sacred waters, but I have no memory of that. I only know that I am strong and beautiful and free, and that when the rain falls, I weep soft tears, joyful to belong to this world. The Ice Cracked, written by Isabel Cook and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. It was a beautiful crisp day in January. The ice on the pond was frozen and Paul, Neville and Tristan all decided to go skating. Tristan had just had his 18th birthday and they were all in a celebratory mood. They began to skate and were oblivious of the danger. Suddenly, the ice gave way. Tristan and Neville fell in. Paul grabbed Neville and pulled him out, but when they made a grab for Tristan, he slipped through their fingers. Neville was shivering, so Paul reached down and caught Tristan's collar. Paul managed to pull Tristan's head out of the water and grabbed his arm. But Tristan's expensive watch came sliding off his wrist and Paul could not hold on to him any longer. Paul was in shock. 
He had nightmares for weeks, recalling Tristan's eyes as he slid under the water. Their parents were angry at the boys for not thinking. The pond is not the right place to go skating, Tristan's mother reprehended them. What were you thinking? Paul and Neville offered Tristan's watch to his mother, but she did not want it. It was a reminder too raw. Neville decided that Paul should keep the watch, as he was the one who almost saved Tristan. Paul was not comfortable wearing it and put it away in a drawer. Paul's nightmare recurred spasmodically and each time he woke he was dripping wet, as if he had been in the water. One evening Neville and Paul went to the pub. It was a rather sobering visit because without Tristan's lively company the boys were rather quiet. Neville went home and left Paul finishing his pint. Paul noticed as he was heading for the door a watch lying on a table. It looked familiar. There was a young man sitting with his back to Paul. A hand reached out and put the watch on his wrist. The young man turned. Tristan? Paul asked. Paul woke up in his own bed, Neville by his side. I think you had a little bit too much to drink last night. You fell and hit your head on the side of the table, knocking you out. How long have I been out? Paul asked. About twelve hours, Neville replied. I think you should go to the hospital and get checked out. Paul agreed, as he felt very peculiar. Paul's x-ray showed no damage, just concussion. The hospital, however, wanted to keep Paul in for observation overnight. Neville left, and Paul, though a little tense he did not like hospitals, settled down in his bed. His observations were all normal, and he settled down to take a nap. The recurring nightmare came so vividly. Paul was reliving the event where Tristan lost his life. He semi-woke up and was wet through. His arms, where he had tried to pull Tristan out of the water, were soaked. The nurse who came to take Paul's observations took one look at him and called for the doctor as Paul was slipping in and out of consciousness. A young doctor came and examined Paul. He had on his wrist a watch. Paul noticed it looked very familiar. The doctor spoke to Paul as he came round. You should have saved me. Paul was terrified as he looked into the eyes of Tristan. Paul's heart rate increased. He was in danger of having a stroke, and as he drifted into unconsciousness again, the dream intensified. The three friends were skating. The sky was blue, and it was a beautiful crisp day. Paul watched helplessly as Neville and Tristan fell through the cracked ice. He pulled Neville out, but as he reached in to help Tristan, two arms grabbed him and pulled Paul under the water. Paul was pronounced dead. The hospital coroner performed an autopsy and found to everyone's disbelief that the cause of Paul's death was drowning. And yet, Paul never had left his hospital bed. Edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith, The Ice Cracked was brought to you by Wavelength Productions and recorded in Huntingdon, Cambridgeshire. The tale you're about to hear is about the fragile mind of Margaret and her marriage, and it has a stark ending.
Eggshells is written by St Ives-based Patrick MacDonald and performed by Sue Rodwell-Smith. How best to kill him, she thought. She stared down at her husband. Tom was lying on his back, his mouth slackly open, snoring noisily. He had seemed to fall asleep almost immediately they had retired to bed, while she lay there crying softly in the dark. She couldn't sleep. Even his snoring seemed yet one more weapon deployed against her. She knew he hadn't really gone to sleep that quickly, that he had lain there awake, deliberately ignoring her obvious misery. God, she hated him. She thought back over the day's events. Their daughter Claire had travelled down from Sheffield for the weekend. Claire was a researcher for one of the big pharmaceutical companies, Astra something or other. Margaret could never remember. She had done a roast dinner for them all and had spent most of the afternoon preparing it. She had insisted on the two of them going for a walk together down by the river. She said she was fine on her own, more than happy pottering around the kitchen. As soon as they disappeared, she had poured herself a glass of wine. Half a bottle had disappeared by the time they came back, but she was careful to hide this in the drinks cabinet in the dining room, putting a fresh bottle in the fridge to cool. Then she prepared dinner. Roast chicken with roast potatoes, a carrot and sweet puree, cabbage, broccoli and courgettes. She also prepared a dish of sweet potatoes. Timing was the thing and she prided herself on getting it exactly right. Except this time, she didn't get it right. She had forgotten to put the sweet potatoes into the oven until the very last moment. Swearing softly under her breath, she now put them in. Never mind, she thought. I can serve them late. It will be fine. I'll just slow everything else down. Her husband and daughter returned. It had started to rain when they were out, and the smell of their damp clothes filled the hallway. They both helped Margaret to serve up. Claire giggling when the chicken leg she tried to leave it onto her father's plate toppled onto the kitchen table instead. Margaret pursed her lips. The table was fine and she knew it easily stained. She wiped the greasy surface where the chicken leg had fallen with a damp cloth. Whoops, said Tom. Good job that wasn't me or I'd be in the doghouse. Margaret glared at him, a look that warned him not to do anything that might spoil the afternoon. Tom pretended not to notice. She left the oven on to give the sweet potatoes another five minutes to cook and then poured herself and Tom a large glass of wine. A Bordeaux, her favourite. You can finish serving up, she called to her husband. I've done my bit. Tom looked at his daughter and shrugged. 
They both guessed Margaret had been drinking. Eggshells, said Claire in a whisper. Eggshells, Tom agreed. They were sat at the table in the dining room, their daughter facing them. Tom beside her. Margaret stared at herself in the large mirror, hung on the wall opposite. I should have arranged things differently, she thought. I should have made sure I was on the opposite side of the table, so I wouldn't have to stare at my own reflection for the duration of the meal. Her face was flushed and blotchy, her hair an untidy mess of dark curls. All this was in sharp contrast to her daughter's flawless complexion and neat page-boy cut. She always looked so perfect. I was never like that. Where on earth does she get it from? Not me anyway, she thought bitterly. Margaret turned to her husband. Can you get me a refill? she said, holding out her wine glass. Tom raised an eyebrow. You haven't finished that one yet. Well, does save me getting up again. Fine, he said. In the kitchen, he noticed the oven was still on and turned it off. He returned with the wine and settles himself to eat. Moments later, Margaret let out a cry. God, I've forgotten the sweet potatoes! She rushed out to the kitchen. Who turned those off? She called. Tom grimaced. I did. I thought you'd left the oven on by mistake. Of course I bloody didn't. You knew I had the sweet potatoes in there. She returned, wearing pink oven gloves and holding the tray of sweet potatoes aloft like a key piece of evidence proffered at a trial. These aren't cooked, she said accusingly. Well, that's not my fault, said Tom. You should have put them in earlier. You did this deliberately. You don't like them, so you made sure no one else would have them either. That's ridiculous. You're being irrational. You did it deliberately. You ruined this meal. Mum, said Claire, a note of warning in her voice. Leave it now. It was an accident. That's the end of it. Margaret stared at Claire. Tears pricked her eyes, humiliated by her own daughter. The afternoon sport by her unfeeling pig of a husband almost as though he'd engineered the whole thing. Her own daughter, who she loved a description, siding with him. She stood up. I can't eat now. You've ruined everything. I spent all day preparing this meal for the two of you, and this is the thanks I get. Margaret, said her husband despairingly, please don't. Mum, Claire cried, Sit down. Dad didn't do anything. I can't, said Margaret and burst into tears. I can't. I can't bear it. I can't. The following day it was still raining. The sky a suffocating grey. Her husband had got up early and she could hear him laughing downstairs in the kitchen with their daughter. Thirty years I put up with this, she thought. His condescending manner, 
how he managed to put her down and to humiliate her in front of their friends. Then he was all innocence afterwards, of course. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And now he had turned her own daughter against her. Well, no more, she thought. Today marks the end. She told them she was going for a walk, needed some fresh air. Do you want me to come with you? said Tom. It's still raining, by the way. Are you sure this is a good idea? It's fine. I won't be long anyway. The rain became fiercer as she walked, almost as though it was warning her to turn back. Her jeans were damp against her thighs beneath her anorak, her trainers already spongy and wet. There was a wood close to the house, and she turned into it. The plant she needed was close to where a tree had recently fallen. A gaping wound torn in the earth, a hydra's head of twisted roots. She stared for a moment at the black bead-like berries, each held in a cluster of leaves like a star, almost like jewels offered up for her to admire. She slipped on a pair of disposable plastic gloves she had brought with her and carefully prized a number of the berries away from their casings, quickly filling a small freezer bag. Blueberry muffins, she thought, his favourite. She could give him one of them tomorrow, once Claire had gone. When she got back, she found a note on the kitchen table, written in her husband's illegible scrawl. Gone for a walk, we'll buy a paper on the way back. Good, she thought. That will give me time I need to do these muffins. She mixed in some blueberries into the dough together with the belladonna berries. She had googled how many might be needed to kill an adult. Ten to twenty, it seemed. Far too many for a single muffin. Well, he's greedy enough to eat two at a sitting. So that should be enough, surely. I just need to give him a bit of encouragement. Once made, she placed him in a large cake tin and hid it in one of the cupboards behind some packets of cereal. She barely had time to wipe down the work surfaces to remove the residues of flour and pastry left there when she heard the front door open and the two of them bounced into the kitchen. Cock completely soaked out there, laughed her husband. Hmm, something smells nice. You been baking? No, well, yes. I made some puff pastry for the chicken and leek pie later. Tom sniffed the air. Smells sort of sweetish, though. A bit like cherries. I think you're hallucinating, dear. Probably in need of a sugar rush. How about a nice cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit? Sounds good. Got the paper, by the way, although it is a little damp. More than a little damp, Dad. You need a hairdryer to sort that out, said Claire. Do you want tea, darling? said Margaret, turning to her daughter. No, I'm fine, honestly. I'd just change out of these wet clothes, if that's okay. Oh, look, she said. I think it's clearing up. 
They stared out of the window. The sky was patched with blue. The sun peering from behind a curtain of grey cloud like an actor with stage fright. Typical, said Tom. The afternoon brightened enough for the three of them to venture out into the gardens. Tom wiped down the metal garden chairs with an old tea towel and adorned them with some blue and cream striped cushions from the garage. Claire made them all a jug of sangria and regaled them with tales of her housemates. How inept they were at cooking and how one of them had got so drunk at a wedding reception that he had toppled backwards into a hedge where he lay helpless like an upturned beetle until some of his friends had rescued him. Margaret leaned back in her chair, the sun warming her face, and felt her anger at her husband slowly seep away. At one point, Claire disappeared into the garage to find some more ice from the freezer for the sangria. She came back, not with the ice, but brandishing two hula hoops. Remember these, Dad? You taught me how to use one of these when I was ten years old, which is a bit of a joke, because if I remember, you were pretty rubbish at it. I was not, said Tom. I think I was pretty good. Well, you can prove it now then, said Claire. You're on. Hand me one of them and I'll show you how it's done. Tom gingerly stepped into the hoop and lifted it to his waist. He expertly spun the hoop his hips moving smoothly to keep it spinning. Not bad for an old un, laughed Claire. Lots of the old un, if you don't mind, said Tom, and he winked at Margaret. Margaret smiled up at him. She had a vision of their wedding day. He had turned and winked at her in exactly the same way when she arrived at his side, having made her way nervously up the aisle of the church. She had giggled, and from that moment on, the day had flown by in a euphoric rush. God, how she had loved him, she thought, and how giddy and fun-filled their early days together had been. Then she remembered the muffins. I have to get rid of them. What was I thinking? Have I lost my mind? You're all right, Margaret. You look... I'm fine. I've forgotten to do something. I'll be back in a second. Is it something I can help with? said Tom. Oh, no, no, it's fine, honestly. She went back into the kitchen and stared at them. They weren't looking back. They were laughing and smiling and engaged in animated conversation. The sun disappeared behind some clouds and it seemed suddenly darker. She bent down to retrieve the cake tin and carefully lifted the lid. She had made six muffins. Two were missing. <laughs>